Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was trying to get this podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show into all the apps people like to listen? How do I make money for my podcast? The answer to every one of these questions is really simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now, Anchor can match with you great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. That means you can get paid to podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now by reading this ad. I use Anchor in a simple matter. I take my podcast episodes, edit them in Premiere, upload them to Anchor and schedule them and set my tags and my description, all that good stuff. Just sit back and let it distribute to all the platforms. It's very simple and very easy to use and very user-friendly. So if you've always wanted to start a podcast, make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start. That's anchor.fm slash start to join me and a diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. I can't wait to hear your podcast. Let's go. This is the Chase in the Frame podcast, where we interview people in the TV and film industry, talking about their journey, how they got to where they are today. We do this podcast for the frame chasers. This is for those in the film industry, going hard, let them know who we are. Frame chasers, we're, we're not chasing the fame, no, no. Tell them what we do. Chasing the Frame. This is the Chasing the Frame podcast with your host, John DeMarco. Let's go! What up, Frame Chasers? It's Wednesday, and you already know what it is. A new episode of Chasing the Frame. Today is episode 80. We are 20 more away from 100, and today I have Ken Johnson. Ken is the president of the Vegas, uh, Vegas the Network. Um, Ken, can you tell us a little bit about Vegas the Network before we start the show? Sure. Um, Vegas the Network is, uh, the full name is really Vegas the Network Studios Incorporated. And we are a production company specializing in episodic content about Las Vegas and Southern Nevada. Awesome. Uh, Before we get further into the show, though, we're going to do a little bit of housekeeping first. So let's get to it. First off, guys, we have to thank our affiliate partners, Artlist.io. Honestly, the best music licensing platform for any type of content creator out there. Thousands of new songs every day on unlimited downloads, which is always a plus, especially when you're trying to find music for any project. That is always the hardest part. Artlist.io makes it easy and simple. Guys, if you join in our affiliate link today, that's in the description below. You'll get one year and two extra months free. So check it out and join Artlist.io, inspiring music licensing platform. Create by filmmakers for filmmakers. Second, guys, we have merch for you at teespring.com slash stores slash chasing dash the dash frame. Not only are we selling t-shirts, but we're also selling hashtag frame chaser mask for $10. Honestly, it's a very comfy cloth mask and super stylish. And you let people know that you're a frame chaser on set. Third, guys, check out Production Apparel as well. We're an affiliate with them. They have some awesome production shirts as well. If you're doing some rap, if you're in a project right now too or going to be in a project, you can also get rap gifts too. They do uh, stuff like that as well. Um, so check out that link below too. And fourth, it's time for that. It's time for the in the show when we ask you for the donations to the Church of the Frame. Three ways to donate. PayPal.me slash podcast One-time donation. Two, Patreon, $5 a month membership, uh, which allows you early access to audio and visual content a week before it airs. And three, in the description below, you can send us cryptocurrency if you like. We have a whole bunch of different ones that you can send to, and that goes straight to our trust wallet for uh, future projects that we would like to do. And last but not least, please like our Facebook page 
as well as subscribe and hit that notification button uh, for our YouTube page as well. We're trying to grow that, guys. So, Ken, are you ready to chase frames? You bet. All right, first question I ask everyone on the show, Ken, where are you from originally? I'm originally from a very small town in northeast Ohio, right on the Pennsylvania border and uh, Lake Erie called Ashtabula. Oh, okay. How, is that what is the nearest mo- metropolitan area from from Ashtabula? Um, so it's probably um, so where I was was mm-hmm. about three to four miles from Lake Erie. Uh, so the nearest metro area was probably to the east um, to Erie, Pennsylvania, which is about thirty-five minutes, about uh, sixty minutes to Cleveland, going west. Gotcha. <clears throat> and then uh, second question I ask everyone on the show is what was that movie, TV show, director, actor that kind of spoke to you and you said to yourself, this is what I want to do in my life, and this is why, this is my dream? Boy, that's a, that's a tough question. Because um, <clears throat> i got to think back to the, um, you know, kind of where the age is. Because I've always been somewhat of a creative, mm-hmm. um, but when I kind of made the move... Um, Boy, um, I, I'm really struggling here. Um, boy, I, I want to say it was something in, I was working in tech, and I got the idea to take up screenwriting. And, and I know there was a movie, I can't remember which, what it was, maybe mm-hmm. it was Crash. Yeah. Um, that, uh, right about that period of time where I decided, hey, I'm going to start this on the side with the, the idea that I would work towards it uh, as something to do in retirement, mostly as writing. Yeah. Um, so that so would say, you know, somewhere in that time frame, probably crash okay. or something uh, similar to that. Nice. So you you were saying that you were an, an entrepreneur, a tech entrepreneur first? Um, well, I, I don't know that I would call myself an entrepreneur. I kind of was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I started off as, uh, you know, my first career was in education. I, okay. I taught for, uh, I taught to earn my way through college, but then taught professionally for five years. Mm. Then, you know, jumped onto the internet thing. Uh, I, I guess I started off as a tech entrepreneur, started the first, uh, I'm going to date myself here, uh, dial up uh, service in the area where I was living mm. uh, back in 1996, or five, I'm sorry, 1995. Oh. Uh, and then uh, the uh, company split up, so I ended up uh, joining this uh, telephone company yeah. in early 1996. Uh, they had started an internet company, so I went from the chief entrepreneur to the after-hours tech support guy. Yeah. Uh, but it didn't take long for me to transition to uh, kind of taking over the engineering mm. piece of it and becoming the chief entrepreneur uh, in everything that had to do with uh, broadband or telecom or cable TV. Gotcha. Now, question two. You said you were teaching uh, before you did that. So what what were you teaching, yep. and then what made you kind of go, I'm good with the teaching. I'm going to try this stuff now. So uh, I went to a real small uh, Christian school in uh, nearby Ashtabula. It's another a uh, weird name. It's called Conneaut. I always say Conneaut not to live there. Uh, but no, it was a great little town. Um, and so I went to this small little private Christian school. And, you know, I went there from grades 8 through 12, graduated. And then they had a really small Bible college program. So I stuck around and did that for five years. 
uh, and then stuck around and taught for five years. Yeah. And while I was there, uh, I kind of made a name for myself in, in math uh, mm-hmm. more than anything. Uh, so it's kind of weird that, uh, you know, as I was coming through school, I was known for my math and I was always in the sport. Yeah. Uh, but as I got into the Bible college program, they didn't have anything that was really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And then I had a roommate who was a very gifted musician and I knew nothing about music other than a little sing-alongs, you know, that you yeah. might do in uh, <laughs> class. And I, I take it back. I, I played the drum a little bit. Nice. But I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't understand what harmony was and all this stuff. And once I figured out how complicated it was, it kind of triggered my ego. Mm-hmm. So that's actually what I studied in college, which was something I knew nothing about, which is wow. odd. Uh, so then as I got into teaching, I taught math, mm-hmm. science. Uh, it was interesting. So for five years, yeah. Every day, I taught every math course for grades seven through twelve. Wow! Um, yeah, and that's yeah, it lot, took a couple of years, of and I I, re- I really filled in all the gaps. And I also <laughs> taught courses like uh, physics and physical science, yeah. and then coached on the side, and then eventually ended up uh, taking over the uh, choral program. Yeah, uh, I'm not a gifted vocalist myself, but I'm a fairly decent conductor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, uh, had a couple of, you know, kind of had to retrain the troops. Uh, but we had some really good kids, uh, come through the musical program. So yeah, yeah and that's kind of me, a little jack of all trades, master of a few, but curious about everything. It's, it's funny too. Cause like music has a lot of math in it and, and you, and you yeah. know math so well, it's like, it's it just a, a fascinating thing. Cause I, I played the drums also for like a hot minute, probably from like 16 to like 18 or something like that. And I just, I didn't yeah. understand at all. I just like would listen to a song and try to like play along with it. Cause I, couldn't count for sure. shit and i was terrible yeah. at trying to get the the uh you know the leg and the arms working properly and separate from each other as well <laughs> you know what's funny for me john is uh i went to school with it was a really small little music program yeah um but i went to school with a few girls i was the only guy uh and it was hysterical to watch because i was all about i i had to be challenged you know mm-hmm. So from you are exactly right. Music is really algebra all over again. When you start getting yeah. into chord progression, uh, the relationships, all the rules of you know you can't do parallel fifths or parallel octaves as you're doing chord progression. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, first inversion, second inversion, augmented, diminished. You know, it was just fascinating world for me to learn. Yeah. So as we were doing the music theory part, where we were learning you know, keys and how you would modulate from one key to another, why you would do it for what effect, learning mm. particular chords, uh, A, across the board. But then I had to do these tests mm. about vocabulary. It was like Italian vocabulary, oh. you know, like Andante and Allegro and all of those stuff. And yeah. that was just a matter of discipline. And I, like, CD, oh. <laughs> you know, and the girls I went to school with, they would ace the vocabulary, but they had no clue what the guy, the professor was talking about with the theory. So it was hysterical to watch. But we kind of helped each other uh, through the process. Nice. And still pretty close with a couple of those, those ladies today. Very nice, very nice. And then uh, you were also saying that you you uh, bought brought uh, broadband internet to your town? Did uh, I hear I that correctly? the first dial-up. Dial-up, sorry, dial-up, yeah. Town. Yes. Now, mm-hmm. 
that uh, back in the day. That's insane because I feel like AOL was everywhere back in the day. Like you'd get you'd open your mailbox and literally every other week was a new version of AOL. I am I'm, well kind of shocked. You're, I, you're almost right, John. Yeah. Uh, it, it was everywhere, but yeah. you have to remember back to the mid '90s, and I don't know how old you are to gauge it. Yeah. Uh, back then, landline phones were still the only thing to use. Cell yes. phones really. I think um, radio phones were out there, but they were incredibly expensive. Uh, so most people didn't have them. And I think I had a bag phone in 1995 that that was considered earth shattering. So landline was still the way to Wait, do like, anything. What, what kind and of phone? You, Is that a bag a phone? A bag phone? Yeah, it was it's a little bag that you would put in your car, oh, okay. hook up to the charger, and it would give you car phone access. Oh. It really wasn't cellular, I don't think, yet. It was I, the step before that. Okay, I think um, I know what you're talking so anyway, about. Anyway, yeah. yeah. So, um, so, so the problem was for us mm. that um, long distance was still a big thing. You yeah. know, it still is with landline. Mm. Um, so, you know, it was like 25 cents a minute. So when AOL and those type of things, CompuServe, came out, mm. Um, they would only launch in metro areas. And then if people in my town wanted to use it, you either had to call Erie, Pennsylvania, or Cleveland, both of which were toll calls. So you're paying like 25 cents a minute to use it on top of. uh, So that's what created the market opportunity for us is to say, let's not have a curated service like AOL. We'll just create an on-ramp to the greater internet Mm -hmm. Um, and then you wouldn't have those long distance phase. Um, so that was kind of the reality back in the day. And that's why, you know, AOL was not ubiquitous in, in our area. Oh, well, I, I did not know that at all. That's uh, really something fascinating to be honest. Cause like, I, I mean, I, I'm from the burbs, I'm from New Jersey's burbs and like, you know, we had <laughs> AOL oh, every week we get the AOL thing and we had landline and we had to like put the landline actually from my parents' bedroom where the landline was, it went under their bed to our TV room and no one could answer the phone or call on the phone or right. whatever it was. And I didn't yep. know that about uh, what you were saying about like how you had to connect to Erie, Pennsylvania or um, I forgot the other one, but you and pay still Cleveland, 20, yeah. Cleveland and pay 25 cents uh, uh, for that long distance thing. That's insane. Just yep. thinking about that, yeah, how, how, how not long ago that was, it wasn't that long ago, but it feels like long ago, right. how much, how the strides <laughs> have even changed too in that. Yeah, absolutely. And as part of the business that I was involved with, with the internet, um, you know, the other one was a telephone company. And Mm. so we were constantly growing. So it was a bit of uh, a little voodoo and stuff to uh, make sure that we knew if a customer called us and said, hey, I want to use your service, I didn't figure out what their phone number was and then which of our phone numbers, because we probably had, uh, you know, 15 different phone numbers from different markets. Yeah. And, um, you know, so it was a matter of trying to figure out um, what number they could dial so that they wouldn't get a long distance charge. And it seemed like every month we'd get like two people that would call the wrong number, then they oh. were calling and yelling at us. Hey, you know, that sounds like a big I got headache. nailed for $100 a long distance, and what's going on? <laughs> like, oh, my God. Like, you need to use the right number. <laughs> that just, um, that just sounds like a, a jigsaw puzzle. Not a jigsaw puzzle. Tetris. Oh, yeah. It just sounds like Tetris because you're trying to get it perfect and you can't always get it perfect. I feel like, oh wow. 
Well, yeah, it was kind of like herding cats at times. You know, because everybody wanted to use the internet, but they really didn't understand yeah. all the underpinning. My favorite story of that, John, just a real mm. quick digression, yeah, was I was working tech support the first year that we started the service mm-hmm. at the telephone company. And I was working the help desk, and this kid calls in and says, hey, I'm trying to get on the internet, and it won't go. And I'm like, all right, so what's it saying to you? He says, I'm getting a no-dial town error. Mm-hmm. I said, hmm, really? And I said, all right, well, let's do this. Let's hang up, and I want you to click connect again and listen to see whether you hear these scratchy bing bong kind of stuff, you know? And I, I kind of had it down <laughs> as to what the other one. I said, okay, try to hear any of that. Yeah. So he calls back and uh, says, no, I didn't hear anything. It just pops up and says, no dial tone. I said, okay, well, is the phone line connected to your modem? He goes, what phone line? I said, okay, <laughs> dude, you're buying dial-up. That implies a phone line and the modem in order for you to dial oh <laughs> and connect. He goes, well, hey, I went up to the office and they just told me all I needed to do was get this disk and install the software. I'm like, have you ever heard of the word prerequisite? <laughs> you know, you can go buy a car, but you're still going to need gas, you know? So we, anyway, we talked him through it, and he's like, there's no phone line in this room. I'm like, okay. What? Well, we got to solve that because you're not getting on the internet so you can connect to a phone line. So uh, that was kind of tough we How was he with. calling you? That's my question. There's no phone line. <laughs> Well, he was uh, at a cordless that oh, okay. was connected upstairs. <laughs> All right. Um, so he was down in front of the computer, and he didn't understand that he had to have the thing connected. Oh, <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> oh, people. <laughs> so, so when you when at that telephone company that you were working on or working with, and yep. uh, now you go to another one after that because you said it split up, and then you kind of just were in, from chief engineer. So, yeah, so in between, right after teaching, um, I started the, I was actually working for a company that was controlled by two of the three partners, well, or six partners, but uh, basically four of them were made up of my brother and their wife, my brothers and their wives. But that wasn't a telephone company. They operate different small businesses, and I came in as a general business consultant. I kind of got bored. Then we had the idea to start this internet company. So they financed it. Uh, I kind of was the engineer, the chief entrepreneur and all. And then, yeah, we we, got, um, we, we started working on it in, uh, I want to say, October, mm-hmm. um, early November, somewhere in that time frame of 1995. Yeah. We went live in February of 96. And we're, we're growing pretty good. Yeah. Um, and then um, they split up right about the first week of March, I want to say. Oh. Uh, and then I walked away. Didn't like the ownership structure was going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I walked away um, in the process yeah. of starting that company because we were first, this telephone company, the next town over, which again was long distance. So it was kind of like two different islands that, you know, you weren't competing against each other directly. Yeah. So their guy that was doing the internet there had called me a couple of times and we had had friendly conversations and I had called the phone company to ask about certain things. Um, so we had kind of chatted a couple of times. Yeah. Well, when I left working for the companies, uh, the company that I started for my brothers, 
I knew the first thing my brother was going to do is shut off my free access number. <laughs> yeah. So I called the local phone company because I was living in the phone company's town, not the town where we started the business. Yeah. So I went to the uh, called up the phone company and said, "Hey, can I get an account?" And they said, "Well, we're not really going yet. We're just testing." I'm like, "Hey, can I test?" So they connected me to the guy, and I didn't realize I had talked to him before. <laughs> and he says, "How's things going over there?" And I'm like, "Well, I quit." And he's like, "Why'd you do that?" Yeah. Well, they changed ownership, and you know, I'm not going to have as much control as I had. So, yeah, we're just out. And he's like, um, "Do you know anything about tech support?" I'm like, "Dude." I'm the only guy with a working ISP. <laughs> so long story short, he got me an interview like the next day. Wow. Um, and then the next Monday, uh, I was at work uh, and ended up, that's a crazy story. So I ended up coming in as the after hours tech support. Mm-hmm. Uh, nine, ten years later, I was, uh, became CEO of that company and did that for ten years. Oh, wow. Uh, and then... Um, after some really tough years in the landline business, uh, that's actually uh, got an offer from a company rolling out broadband here in Southern Nevada. And uh, they recruited me, hired me uh, to come out here and help them get rolling. So, and that's yeah. kind of how I ended up in uh, Southern Nevada. Oh, wow. Uh, and then also around that time too, when you, when you get to Southern Nevada or earlier, maybe, I don't know, uh, did you start wanting to write scripts? Now, how did that come about? Yeah, so, you know, it was interesting when I, I'm kind of this obsessive compulsive personality to an extent Mm -hmm. where, you know, I always played sports growing up and that's not a part-time commitment. You know, if you want to win, you put in the work. So I was, you know, after school, I'd get home, get my homework done, I'd be bored. Well, I'd go out in the driveway with this kind of long driveway with Mm -hmm. fenders and I draw a line in the fenders and it was a challenge to throw the football as far as I could, still run under it and catch it, and I'd mark it. And I was always trying to push myself. Same yeah. thing with basketball. We had a little poop. Uh, so I would stack stuff up so I could jump off of that and dunk, and then I would start to reduce it, always running and stuff. So I, I was kind of that obsessive kind of thing. Yeah. So when I first got into the Internet business, I mean, technology was changing. There was market share to gain. There was engineering to be done. It was just the time of my life. And the yeah. phone company I worked for in Ohio was just the most awesome place to ever work uh, for a guy like me. So I was learning cable TV. I was learning everything to do in the telephone industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up becoming, an, you know, cable, I'm not a full kind of fledged engineer. Um, but on telecom and on just about any broadband technology, uh, including fiber optics, I, I kind of became a pretty good mastery of that Cisco routers and all that. Uh, so it was just the place to be. But after doing that for, let's see, it was around 2000, um, a couple of things happened. Uh, you know, I realized, so when I first started off, I was paid peanuts, but I was allowed to get overtime. And since there was so much to do, I'd work 70, 75 hours a week. Wow. Well, uh, they started to transition me onto salary and once I kind of got pegged, um, I still a lot of work to do, and I would still work 45, 50 hours a week, uh, but I realized that it was diminishing returns at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like, you know what? I got to do something to uh, 
you know, kind of get some balance in my life so I'm not just completely, because it, it was years where I was completely, probably 90 hours a week, um, wow. sold out to learning my craft and, you know, keeping up with the technology. But mm-hmm. then that kind of kind of leveled out where it wasn't as hair on fire. Um, and, and going back to my teaching days and even my college days where I was student teacher, uh, I was always writing scripts um, because the kind of the little Christian school kind of group that we were in mm-hmm. had annual competitions. Ah. And so it would be everything from puppets and marionettes to one-act plays, radio shows, uh, monologues, speeches, um, musical competition, athletics, arts and crafts. It was pretty a, a big deal. So the kids that I had in school or kids that knew me, um, you know, I I did a couple of skits, and then all of a sudden I was like anointed Mr. Entertainment. So anytime there was a program coming up, people would come to me and go, hey, I need you to write me something. Uh, and so I would do, I was pretty prolific when I was teaching. I would do, boy, I would say uh, 20 to 25 original works a year, um, some long form, some very short, like a one-act play. Um but, uh, and then if there was any skits to be done, you know, like a parent program for the high school or something, yeah, I was the guy writing the Christmas play, the Thanksgiving play, a patriotic something. Yeah. Um, so, so I was always doing that. So, uh, but when I left teaching, that kind of left behind. Yeah. Uh, I got bored kind of, you know, with 90 hours a week in tech and, you know, no more overtime. Um, you know, I, I you know, was always enjoying my movies. Yeah, uh, and then I kind of stumbled across. Well, you know, the screenplay is the way that you you make a movie. Mm-hmm. I'm like, hmm, that's something I know nothing about. I love the creative, and that's a good counterpoint to what I do. So let's go get a book on that and see what we can do. And because I think I can learn anything, and uh, let's see what we can do. So I, I, that's what I did, and decided, uh, and I came up with my first idea for a movie. Uh, that centers it was actually an action adventure concept okay. uh, that had the premise of some first person video game uh, players uh, actually got you know the terrorism thing and they have to uh, control these uh, virtual uh, bots for the military in this uh, nuclear fallout zone uh, and so it's like the military sees their performance on these video games and knows they're really good. So they then like send helicopters out and come to these kids from their basements uh, <laughs> to have to come in and control these bots. But the bots are kind of in development, yeah. but they don't have any operators for, you know, 25 of these things at one time. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that was my first foray into it. And since that time, I want to say maybe written about seven uh, screenplays total. Nice. Now, when you wrote that, uh, the one with the bots in the military, was it hard for you, or did it flow out pretty easy? Like, did did you find like well, the, inter- because uh, now that you're actually like screenwriting in the sense of like what the screenplay is, like, it, was it hard for you to get a wrap around the format idea too, or was it like, oh no, this is easy because I've done this in the past, obviously, you know, in that regard too? No, yeah, I, I would say no, only because as an engineer, I knew how to. Okay, so and partly from having taught for the better part of ten years as well. Yeah. Um, so um, 
so so I was very eager, much like my music in college, where I'm like, I know nothing about this. Yeah, wide open, nothing. That excites me because I I get to start, I get to practice learning mm-hmm. as part of it. So yeah, I, first thing I did look at the format, easy enough, and I went out and bought Final Draft uh, oh, and wow. learned that, which. You know that that took care of ninety five percent of the stuff. <laughs> like if I'm doing a montage yeah, or true. dual split screen, I have no idea. So then you just you know Google that or get some other books on the yeah. the details of how to do that. But for the main formatting, not a big deal. Um, the story was not an issue, mm-hmm. but um, to make a good story is a lot of work. And that's what I started to learn. So I, it was kind of cool because we had a contractor who sold Yellow Pages ads for us mm-hmm. who would come from the movie business. And uh, so he had some knowledge, you know, to, so I was talking with him and he was excited. So I printed out my screenplay, gave it to him. He sent it back, you know, 115 pages or whatever it is, every page marked up. You know, there's little things that you start to learn. You know, like, yeah. I'd be like, she starts to walk across the room. And they're like, no, there's no beginnings. There's no starts. There's only what happens. So she walks in. Um, you know, trying to do everything in active voice in the action sequences. So you don't say, you know, John looks sad. You know, yeah. you have to describe his face because it's a visual medium and you want an action verb. You don't want John is. You say John, you know, furls his brow and snarls, you know. Yeah. Um, so trying to keep that stuff active and then the beat structure, you know, what you're including, what you're not. Uh, and then I had this, uh, deus ex machina at the end and the guy's like, no, 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 no. You can't have something come in and save the day that wasn't introduced earlier in the script. So that was a really great way for me to do my first script. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and again, it's the story was sound. The concept was high concept mm-hmm. had great beats to it uh but the execution that's really where the work is yeah and uh and then if you want to get paid you really have to become expert uh, you know at that and the nuance very very true uh so this script that you wrote is it ever gonna be a movie are you planning on it um once i get enough money all right (laughs) (laughs) um you know because you know the the screenplays Somebody, this is an original, not original to me. Uh, somebody said this shortly after I got into screenwriting. Um, basically, said you know that now the screenplay is the great American novel, uh, you know, from the 30s and 40s. Yeah, uh, and it's true. Everybody and their brother has a story idea, wants to write that screenplay, and there's you know half a dozen uh, you know Quentin Tarantino type uh, stories out there where somebody strikes it rich. Yeah, uh, who's the Girl with uh, that wrote Juno, uh, the stripper. Oh, oh um, um yeah. not uh, no. Yeah, I oh my, I, I had the Diablo Cody, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so see, there's you know some of those lottery winners, if you will, but by and large, that's not where you know you're just going to write a script and it's going to be good, and, and even if it is. The challenge is getting it in front of somebody that's actually going to read it and take it seriously. Um, so there was a lot of that kind of stuff to learn. And that's kind of why I ended up going more in the vein of, you know, number one, I got to do something and produce something 
that shows up somewhere on the map to give me credibility. And then I will, I, I use this metaphor, John, mm-hmm. is I kind of liken it to um, seeing a party through glass windows at this huge hotel like Caesars, let's say. Mm-hmm. You're like, hey, I want to go join that party. Yeah. And you're dressed for it. You think you can hang. But then you realize you can't go through the window. It's not that quick of a, a leap. Yeah. You actually have to go all the way down three blocks in the front door, down the alleyway, take an elevator, you know. Uh, and so that's kind of how I approach it is, yeah. yeah, I've got a great idea, I think. I think I can execute it. Um, but what I wrote was a movie that probably would cost $25 million minimum to make. Yeah. And, you know, nobody's going to pay me $25 million to build their house because I don't know how to do it. Yeah. And certainly nobody's going to pay me for the script for a $25 million movie when they've got known commodities all around them. So, uh, so yeah, we, we continue. I, I hope to make that. Uh, I, I kind of changed. I, I did a couple other projects in between, and then I kind of went to what I thought was a little more of that, you know, crawl before you walk thing. Yeah. And wrote uh, with my daughter, we wrote an independent small budget horror movie that I think we can make for about a million. Uh, we actually shot the trailer for that. Once that was out here in Vegas, Yeah, uh, we got a crew together, shot the trailer, took it to the market. People liked it, but the question was, okay, where's, and I did have a finance company that was, uh, you know, got all the materials from me. And so they told me, we'll finance the back half of it. You just need to come up with four hundred thousand uh, dollars, you know, to do the front half. Yeah, and yeah, you know, and I'm not willing to risk that on me. Yeah, <laughs> so how would I expect anybody else to do it? Yeah. So uh, yeah, so, so that's kind of what we did. We came, we backed up, and now we started with the smallest budget projects we could do, mm-hmm. which are mostly reality TV and some studio stuff. Yeah, uh, to learn our craft, go through the motions deliver on deadlines, produce good creative, and then we're slowly working our way up from there. And then it's interesting because in one respect, it seems like it's been a long time. Yeah. But on the other hand, um, I look back and look at where I thought I needed to go. And then, you know, because part of it is you start the journey and you don't, you, you know the destination, but you yeah. don't have a map to the destination. Very true. And then you start learning what terrain to look for Mm -hmm. and what terrain to avoid. And you really get better at, you know, getting the path a little more linear Mm -hmm. um, than kind of the way I play golf where, (laughs) you know, I shank it to the right, you know, and then I pull it to the left and then slice over here. So my wife is about a five mile walk when I went golfing on a two mile golf course. That's why I play mini golf <laughs> still. And that's not even counting the number of circles I would make to try to find my golf ball. Please. So anyway, that, that's kind of the thing, you know, yeah. so, so, you know, a couple years in now we're, we're zigging and zagging a lot less mm-hmm. and we're able to take vertical steps. Um, and that's where it kind of gets exciting. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm open to, you know, earn, and this is what I tell you, coming from the tech background mm-hmm. where I didn't study, you know, storytelling or anything with video production school, yeah. it's all hard not. And that's tough and it's time consuming. Um, but I'm willing to do it and pay my dues. Um, 
but you just have to be uh, willing to earn the right to do the next thing. And that starts by doing what you're doing today well with complete mastery. And then you'd be surprised where, uh, you know, the opportunities come from. And it starts to accelerate. Mm. And that's where it gets fun. Yeah. Uh, like you like you were saying, like you have to find the terrain. I, like I always say, you have to pivot. Any good company pivots and corrects where they need to go. Yep. And uh, yeah, yep. totally agree. And then a question too, when you- You know, you yeah. know I know to oh, yeah. add there, John. Go ahead. Uh, sorry to interrupt. Oh, no, all good. No um, worries. Yeah. So um, to that point, being a tech entrepreneur, um, you know, uh, I don't even know if that's a fair term. That might be overly broad. Uh, but rolling out new products and services and technologies in mm. the tech sector, um, you know, I kind of evolved into this, what is, uh, you know, for your listeners out there, it's called MVP, Minimum Viable Product. So in the early days of the broadband, we could do no wrong. Yeah. We would say, hey, we're going to roll out, you know, a faster modem and people ate it up and would pay more. Uh, then we came out with our first broadband service, an ADSL over copper kind of product that was always on and megabits of speed. It was earth shattering. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people jumped all over it. So we, we kind of felt like we could do no wrong. Well, then we did this one. My boss at the time said, hey, we're going to resell this hardware. So he bought like five of them at a real big premium. And we rolled it out and nobody bought any of them. Uh, they just sat on the shelf, uh, and he kept looking at me like, sell these. I'm like, well, that wasn't my idea. Um, so then we realized, okay, we didn't have the golden touch. We could make mistakes. It would cost a lot of money. So, uh, And then the company, when I became CEO, was cash-starved. So then we just didn't have any margin of error. Mm. So, but, but in the process, I liked it because it taught me the discipline, again, of what's called the MVP, minimum viable product, which means if I'm an entrepreneur – I'm not going to spend a dime more than I need to take a product to market mm-hmm. because there is this inherent disconnect. And unless you've got the money to do a ton of focus groups and research, um, and you just don't have that as a startup first time tech on or first time entrepreneur, but what you're trying to sell will never be a perfectly round peg for the whole, the round hole that the customer has in what they want to spend money on to buy. Mm -hmm. So what you're trying to do is create this product, get it out in front of the customer so the customer can tell you, hey, it's too thick here, it's too thin there, it's not round enough, or maybe it needs to be more oblong. Mm -hmm. Then you want to have a little bit of dry powder to go back, dial it in, take it back. And it's an iterative approach two or three times. Yeah. And then eventually you dial in and that the companies that figure that out, then are ready to go. But if you spend all of your resources all in thinking you know the market and then you roll it out and you miss, you're done. Um, so that's kind of what I learned by heart knock. And so that translates into creative. Uh, I don't like to spend a dollar more on producing something then I need to to create a good quality product yeah. um, because I want to um, be able to operate as inexpensively as I can, create volume of work, and then get more and more opportunity. And then eventually it leads to higher margins, and then you're going to be legit. 
Um, so that, that's kind of how I approach tech and brought that to uh, you know the creative part of, of running a production company. Gotcha. That I mean it makes sense too because like like you said, it, even the biggest one of the biggest returns on investment also is making a horror film as well. Yeah, and there yeah, if you can do it well, if you can do it well, yes, and and that is I you would explain the MVP method that is basically an MVP method in that in that regard. Yeah, exactly. And uh, let me ask you this too: as you said, you made a trailer for the the horror film to pitch it, basically. Now, what was that yeah. like for you being on set? Were you on set for that time? What was it like for you? No, no, no. So the CEO in me. Uh, again, because I didn't go to film school, um, you know, and, and in my tech career, um, one of the biggest challenges for me, and I, I kind of missed one piece of the puzzle here, mm. is um, I went away and got certified on Cisco equipment, which is like routers that you yeah. connect different buildings together with, uh, you know, across towns and stuff. Yeah. But anyway, so I got to be pretty good at that, got certified and got excited. So I went to the local Kent State branch and said, hey, you know, a lot of my customers in the corporate world don't understand what these routers do, and it's annoying. I said, so uh, Cisco has this high school slash college curriculum. Why don't you offer that so that these corporate IT people in the area could get up to speed for, you know, the future of broadband? And they said, oh, that's a great idea. Why don't you teach it? <laughs> like, what? Uh, so I ended up back in the classroom at Kent State University, uh, the local branch where I was. Yeah. And uh, the uh, uh, department head there and I basically uh, pioneered these uh, four what we called inter-networking courses. We couldn't use the word Cisco. Um, and I actually taught there off and on for seven years, I want to say. Wow. Uh, but as part of the process, I got actually got um, free tuition um, if I wanted to pursue my master's degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that I went back and got a, a master's degree in technology and finished that the year before I became CEO. So why did I tell you that? <laughs> um, we were... I can't remember the question that spawned. Oh, I was, I was, um, I was asking uh, when you made your, the trailer for that horror film. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. So, so in the process, mm-hmm. two things happened. When yeah. I was teaching, I found good, curious young people in my college classes. Mm-hmm. Then I would hire them as part-time after-hours tech support people. Mm-hmm. And then anybody that really succeeded then um, I would hire him on full-time. And in fact, when I left the phone company to come out west, the guy that succeeded me was actually one of my students I recruited from the classroom who became the uh, CEO after me. Um, And so I got to really getting a good feel for character and professionalism in people and, you know, dialing in and shooting a high percentage on quality hires uh, but I also learned the art of delegation. So as we got into the trailer, um, I found some great people in town. Uh, one is uh, Jeremiah Rounds, who mm-hmm. is a graphic artist, a bit of a cinematographer, a director, uh, camera op. He does it all. And uh, so I was like, hey, I want you to be running point for me and help me get the crew that I need. Yeah. And you'll be the director on this. Uh, my daughter had gone to film school and she worked with a lot with me on a lot of localized uh, cable productions back in the day, football games, yeah. you know, shows. Um, 
So she was going to be kind of PA, DIT kind of thing. And then Jeremiah kind of filled out the rest of the group. Uh, we spent about $30,000 and produced the trailer. Um, we got really good. But, but I stayed back into the role of I'm writer and I'm producer. Yeah. Uh, so I did not want to be on set and have too many opinions. Gotcha. Um, so it was a purposefully kind of my CEO role where mm-hmm. you get quality people with the right skill sets. You give them the resources they need. And in my philosophy, you get the heck out of their way and just do the follow-up, you know, accountability stuff. Yeah. But you really want to give those people oxygen and let them do what they know how to do. Yeah. And uh, so I really felt good about that effort with the team. I still work with most of the people that were involved in that. Yeah. And again, you know, as I get some successes, the goal is to circle back and actually finish that uh, film in that movie. Definitely. And also too, saying that having that CEO mentality is something that people I think need to have as well sometimes, especially like if they write it and they give it to someone else, they need to have that full trust into giving that person that full like blessing basically in a sense. Well, you know what, you, 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 you touch on a good subtopic here, John, which is, you know, if, if you're going to be a creative, if mm-hmm. you're going to write, if you're going to be part of a crew yeah. or anywhere involved in this where the objective is to make money, either get paid for a day mm-hmm. or sell an asset or something like that, people have, you know, one of the flaws that I see is people lose track of what's hobby, what precious to me as me and my property versus am I doing this for money? And so, you know, I think a lot of people starting out who have ideas and want to do kind of indie projects, they get all caught up in what's precious to them um, and lose sight of this is a money-making enterprise. So if you don't finish something, Mm -hmm. you're dead in the water. But actually, that kind of takes you back professionally because then people get kind of, you, you lose the credibility. Nobody wants to work with you because you can, you can ask for a favor from just about anybody one time. Yeah. And either that favor's got to pay off or people don't want to return your phone calls. And so uh, my thing was this was a money-making enterprise. I have never done anything other than, you know, local cable stuff back where I was. Uh, but I hadn't done anything professionally where somebody paid me big bucks for it. Yeah. So who was I to show up on set from these people like Jeremiah who had worked on big projects, movies? Uh, maybe he wasn't the director, but at least he wasn't nearly as ignorant as me. Um, <clears throat> so I had to get rid of any feelings of being precious. And he actually rewrote like the first 10 pages of the script that we were shooting. Yeah. And I kind of had a little hitch in my neck, you know, uh, like, wait a minute, that's my screenplay. But he's the guy that he's the director. He's going to put his name on the finished product. Yeah. And so you have to learn to say hands off. And if you're going to pay somebody, you need to trust that person until they prove that they can't be trustworthy. Oh yes. Um, yeah. So it's really that it's, you know, Keeping focused on getting paid is why you're doing this, mm-hmm. um, not passion projects. And, and I think that's the, 
you know, as people look at Hollywood or television or streaming and create uh, content creation, I think that's the number one flaw right now is the number of people that lose sight of this is about making money, making a living mm-hmm. and getting the, the opportunity to keep doing it. Because if, if you don't get paid at some point, you got to go get a real job. <laughs> and if you're working somewhere else 40 hours a week, then you're not creating. Yeah. And so that's, that's the big thing. And, uh, you know, the more people focus on, Hey, this is business and only business, uh, the better and quicker they're going to be in their career. Ken, you couldn't have said it better because what I say on the show you basically have reiterated because I always say it's not called show art. It's called show business. It's a business yep. for a reason. And I, yeah, you know, yeah. And, and again, you know, it's, it's interesting, John, because, um, and I've used this analogy, I don't know how many times, mm-hmm. but when I was in college studying music, um, one of the things I did when I was dating my wife <laughs> is the Erie had a Philharmonic mm-hmm. um, orchestra and their season ticket for college students was something ridiculous, like 50 bucks. So what I did to kind of, uh, when I was dating my wife mm-hmm. to kind of be Mr. Suave, <laughs> I bought two tickets for the season to the Philharmonic. Yeah. And I knew there was always somebody I could get a ride up there with. Um, and sometimes we actually went with our parents. Yeah. So it's kind of cool. Um, but, um, so, so I go to the Philharmonic and I'm sitting there watching the conductor and he's jumping up and down, waving this baton, sweating his head off, you know, buttons are popping off and he's out of control. Right. Yeah. So it was just a great show. So then when I'm back at school, I had to take conducting for a semester and my professor says, okay, here's this little cardboard thing. If you're doing a four, four pattern, you're going to go down where you're, your hand has to be flat. It has to go down to your belly button and then up to your one shoulder, to the other shoulder, up to your chin, and back down. And that's a 4-4 beat. And he says, okay, and if you're doing this correctly, the audience will never see your hand and see you doing anything, which is what you want so that they're watching the choir or the band and enjoying the music, not you. So I was doing this a little bit, and I got marked at a couple things. I said, all right, Dr. Ewing, I got a question for you. He's like, okay, what? So I went to the Philharmonic Saturday night, and that little Korean dude is hopping around, jumping around, doing whatever. He said, you know what? That, along with chord progressions in composition, or there's a rule to that. Mm-hmm. He says, the rule is you have to learn how to be perfectly disciplined to the way that it should be done. Then once you reach a, a, a degree of mastery, then you can start to deviate from that. But the important thing is your deviation has to show that you have the underpinning theory and mastery. Then you can go. And he, he told me a story where he published a piece of work and he used the Neapolitan sixth chord. I think it's like a sixth chord and second inversion or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said the publisher actually called him and said, hey, why did you use this chord here? And he goes, well, I have this emotional effect I was trying to accomplish. He said, had he not been able, if he had done it accidentally, or if he didn't have a good explanation of why he did it, he said he probably would have never been published again because he would have looked like a rookie. So fast forward again, it's where you're doing 
you know, trying to make this in business is you're trying to illustrate that I have mastery and that I have the credibility, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to move forward in, in this industry. Yeah. Uh, and so you really have to do those little things uh, to earn your way up. And so I, I always throw that out to folks because, um, you know, uh, you know, I guess where I was going with that is, if you have a piece of art that you want to produce and protect, that's what Tom Hanks, uh, that thing you do, Clint Eastwood, well, movie, his last five movies. <laughs> right? But what have they done? They went out and paid their dues, mm-hmm. said yes sir, no sir, yes ma'am, no ma'am, and did work to make money. And then on the latter part of their career, they then earned the right to produce art mm-hmm. at their own risk, at their own expense. Uh, but you don't start there. Yeah. That, that's how you finish your career. Very true. Very, very true. And go, and going back to the trailer also, let me ask you this too. After the trailer, is that when you started getting the idea for Vegas, the network studios, or did you have that idea ready? No. Um, great, great catch. So, um, no, we produced the uh, trailer, and then I realized the mountain of money that it would take to bring that into existence. Uh, and and it, being an MVP guy, I just wasn't going to put all those eggs in that basket. Yeah. And, and not that you know I'm that wealthy that I could have anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had you know some savings, some retirement, some yeah. opportunity. Uh, but you know, <laughs> too, there's the problem of you know, getting my wife on board, although she's been a big fan of mine and, you know, been, you know, helped me with a lot of productions over the years. Is breaking into a new world at $400,000 just wasn't something I think I was going to get away with. Um, You know, or it would have taken me five years and then, you know, continuity and actors, you know, just myriad of props. So that just wasn't going to happen. Um, so then I started thinking about, okay, we did produce this. We got really good response with it. Mm-hmm. Having come from the cable TV background, because the whole time I was at the telephone company in Ohio, and out here I was involved in uh, running cable TV uh, franchises. And um, you know, and I kind of sat back. And the other thing was, once I took the trailer to the market, I started to have people come out of the woodwork. Hey, I got an indie project. I've got a webcast. Yeah. or a, a web series, I've got an indie film, and nobody was comfortable selling it. So they asked me, would you mind taking it to market with you? I'm like, yeah, okay. Well, then I saw how much speculative content the creative community was creating in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. You know, cable TV is always, especially with all the cord cutting going on with traditional cable and satellite, people are looking for niche content um, you need to have an, you know, uh, somebody that's motivated to pay marketing um, or, uh, you know, promotional stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, you got to have that input, that gas to the engine, uh, but you have to have the content. So I started, I, I talked with the crew first and said, I got this crazy idea. Las Vegas is this crazy brand. And if you look on the dial, you've got, you know, Pawn Stars, Counts, Customs, American Restoration, 
uh, flipping flop Las Vegas, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Basically, you've got a version of every popular show with the Las Vegas label, and it's spread all over the dial. What if there was a way to curate that mm-hmm. into a single network and then also use it multidimensionally where the content itself becomes the marketing for Las Vegas? Um, and so I kind of talked about it a little bit, talked with a couple of executives, talked with some people in the industry, everybody loved it, still came down to money. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it always it does. Probably, right? uh, <laughs> it was probably three months after we shot the trailer mm-hmm. that I kind of got the idea and uh, we started, you know, working to, to make it happen. And then it yeah. was about another six months before we actually created the company uh, and started, you know, spending money. Yeah. So you're, uh, let me think. So you're making this the the Vegas the network studios. Now, how are you finding like? And you said people are coming to you with ideas. Now, are are they fully fleshed out? Were they shot already? Were they? Yeah, yes, no. Like, well, how did you kind of curate to go? Uh, yeah, this one's gonna work. This one's not gonna work. Or so we're very much on a scale of one to one hundred. Mm-hmm. We're at about eight to ten of our way to creating Vegas, the network as a full time standalone and in my fantasy world, linear network. Mm. Um, so we're very much still in the early phases of, if you're thinking about building a house, we are still finishing up the foundation. Gotcha. Um, so, so when I was going to the market, that's where people started bringing me content. Um, and it, you know, I want to say most everybody, put in a valiant effort, but it was, you know, maybe just a, a, a knock or two away from being legit, mm-hmm. you know? And so that became a big thing for me is to make sure, okay, anything I produce, it's got to be legit. Yeah. Um, so what I ended up doing is I took uh, the better part of, went out and bought some gear. Mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of renting, uh, although there's reasons to do it back and forth. Um and being the MVP guy, I want to get enough equipment, mm-hmm. but not too much stuff that'll give me a good product, but that I'm not overpaying. Because I know some people go out and buy a $100,000 RE <laughs> to try a little reality show with a single camera, and that's just not practical. Yeah. No, so, uh, and we actually did both. We bought, um, you know, a single cinema camera with mm-hmm. all the lenses so that we could do a single camera you know, high end production. Yeah. And then we got a couple of 4k, uh, fixed lens cameras that we could use for run and gun and reality show. So yeah. what I did was I, I spent about, um, 25,000 on gear, mm-hmm. uh, microphone, cables, tripods, you name it. Yeah. Spent about $40,000. And what I had done, I said, okay, if I'm going to have a full network, I have to have a full slate. I've got to show people what the content will be yeah. and it can't be travelogue because <laughs> the travel channel doesn't even do travelogues anymore. Yeah. Uh, it's just not watchable. It's not entertaining. There's no characters. Uh, I think the closest thing that still flies in that format is probably diners, drives and dives. Uh, but that's carried by Guy Fieri's energy. That's true. Yes. Uh, but other than that, well, you know, without a big Ken, dominant personality like that, Ken real but, quick, don't forget Rick Steves. He's still on the air. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and I do watch him. Yeah, I uh, I'm not old. 
um, but but yeah, I mean, it just but it's it's just it, it, you know you can't do that twenty four by seven yeah. again unless you've got a really strong personality that people identify with. But you know, somebody you've never heard of. I think like to me, probably the closest thing that people could talk about was old uh, E Network uh, Art Man After Hours kind of thing. Yeah, where yeah. he'd like go to Burning Man or something like that. But even that wasn't even watchable. I mean, how many times can you have just people yelling and like, you know, with a beer? Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's not entertainment. No. So I had to come up with this whole slate. We had kind of vision for the programming we wanted to create. So I took $40,000 over six weeks. We got a small crew together and we went and just started shooting them mm. because I, you know, starting out, I had vision. Um, but believe it or not, you can go have all the money in the world, all the equipment in the world, best crew. Mm. It never looks like what you, you, it looked in your head. And so I knew I had to calibrate what was in my head with what we could actually produce. Um, and starting from ground zero, that's a pretty big variance. Um, so we got to, to work and like the sports show concept we wanted to do, we shot it the first time it was horrible. Yeah. Um, and it was my fault as the show creator. It just didn't work. Um, so what, I had what crew, didn't work? I had everybody come back. If I may ask, what didn't um, work? Um, just the way I was trying to pull it off. Gotcha. Um, you know, the pacing. And so, so, so the concept for our sports show was I don't want just people sitting around a table yakking because uh, that just gets old. I mean, that's half yeah. of ESPN. That's NFL Network. Again, it's, there's no action. So I thought, you know, it's kind of funny if these people are sitting there that have all the answers for these pro athletes, let's have them between each segment have to do some kind of athletic challenge and see whether they can put up, you yeah. know, can they make a three-pointer, you know? Can they hit a softball on a pitching machine? Yeah. Um, and so we'd have a little bit of competition in between all the talking. But it just didn't work the way I visualized it mm-hmm. um we shot it again with less bad and i think probably could work but but then my people like you know the three hosts one is younger guy who's in shape the other two are not yeah and one was kind of older like me and um it, it was apparent to me that the younger guy was always going to win <laughs> you know so it was yeah. it wasn't even close yeah you know so it's like hmm uh, so unless you had all three younger guys that were all of the same physical capability, the competition angle just wasn't going to work. Uh, we did another one that was a uh, cooking show. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was supposed to be a competition, kind of like a, an Iron Chef kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was kind of funny. And this is what happened. I was trying to film a particular show concept. Yeah. But everything kept melting down around it. And at the end of the day, I just walked home and completely failed. And I slept on it the next morning. I said, you know what? Here's the problem is we go into this environment, and it was kind of cool because we had uh, um, from the Tanked show, mm-hmm. uh, Brett Raymer, the main character there and creator, uh, he was actually one of our judges. Um, so, you know, it's kind of looking at the whole thing. And I said, you know what? Now that I see it, I should have made the show about what was actually happening and less about the structure that I wanted. Mm-hmm. And it would have been fun. It would have been more energetic and spontaneous. 
and I think that'll work, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Because um, it was like this Italian family, we were filming at their house. So the kids are coming, the dogs are coming, we're in the kitchen with three, four cameras set up all at the same time. We're trying to get the food, line up who's cooking next. It takes like an hour. Yeah. Um, and then the lady of the house, uh, her mother, who's Italian, um, Nona, was, uh, you know, she didn't understand what we were doing and she didn't speak very good English. So we're in the middle of shooting and everything. And she decides, wow, these dishes are piling up. So she just wanders through the shot. And I thought, <laughs> you know, if we didn't just let go of the formal structure yeah. and film Nona doing dishes right in the middle of the cooking, it'd have been hysterical, yeah. you know, <laughs> and it would have been spontaneous, real, uh, visceral, you know, uh, and, you know, and she's kind of, she was a sweetheart. So it was this kind of endearing thing. And so I'm like, you know, and that was a big lesson to me, which was, you know, don't go in with the iron fist with your concept, yeah. go in and be a little bit flexible. Um, yeah. So anyway, we shot those uh, 17 pilots, wow. tried to sell ourselves and get somebody to invest to ramp up the linear network. Mm -hmm. And then as always happens, I have a motto, John, that I say, activity begets activity. So if, if you want something to happen, yeah. figure out a way to give some energy in that direction. Sitting at home, talking about it, thinking about it, doesn't do you anything action is the only thing that counts. Yeah. So we had spent the money. We went out and did those pilots and I sent a couple of links to a guy that I had met a year earlier and I knew he was a showrunner or brokered content. Mm -hmm. And he's like, Hey, I got somebody in Vegas. You mind if I show this to him? I'm like, well, I don't care. That was the whole point of it. Yeah, right. So uh, he says, uh, they were trying to produce this show about Porsches mm -hmm. and they're, producer director just up and left them yeah. um, and they got nothing. And I said, well, sure. So they introduced me. We started talking three months later. We signed the contract to produce season one of what now is uh, called the 900 series. Mm -hmm. It's a reality show all about Porsche uh, based on their repair shop in town. And it has, uh, we, we started off on motor trend TV and we just signed deal to launch the show on Mav TV nice. along with season two. Uh, later this spring, we're on Amazon Prime. We're on Tubi, uh, and so that show has you know all the culmination of everything I learned in the previous four months and all the pilots. Yeah. When we went to work for the 900 series, we were able to put it to work, produce. It cost effectively. Mm -hmm. uh, the technical mastery is there. I mean, we had to, you know, go right to new Discovery Network standards. You know, yeah. Motor Trend is one of the Discovery uh, family of channels. Yeah. So, um, you know, and then at that point, I felt like, okay, we're, we're done zigzagging, and now we started to climb vertically. Mm -hmm. And that one project gave me the chance to work on the revenue side, to go get sponsors. Yeah to, uh, you know, cash flow analysis, to, you know, the creative, how much crew do we need, how do we produce these kind of things, uh, to, you know, the vision of the stories and seeing them. And it's nothing like that first time when I, and the show aired 7 o'clock Eastern time. Mm. So uh, my daughter came over, she was part of my crew. We, you know, set the DVR promoter trend uh, yeah. last April 
and nothing like sitting there watching this network. They go to commercial, they go to promo, and then boom, here comes our show with commercials in it and everything. Wow, yeah. And then it's over. It was just like, that was, did that just really happen? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so that kind of gave us, we finished off the foundation. Now we knew we could produce anything. Yeah. And so now we're kind of, well, we did that uh, and finished over the summer. And uh, we produced another show nationally. We kind of pitched the idea. It's really a loss leader, but it was about gaining distribution to me. Mm-hmm. And so I have a really great relationship with the network there. We're working on a couple of new things with them. Yeah. Um, so now it's just a matter of how do we uh, generate the revenue that we need for more projects. Yeah. And once we can kind of get that figured out where, because what you're trying to do basically is get to a place where you know I can spend a buck and make a buck fifty. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and once you get to that equation figured out so that it always works in your advantage, well, then you're motivated to put every dollar you can find into it. And we are definitely close to that. Uh, we kind of understand the revenue side. Yeah. We know what we can produce. We've now got a track record. So now it's about, okay, let's gear up these other shows that we've been talking about for 18 months um, and and actually start producing and getting them out to market. Question to you, for you as well, like doing those uh, handful of shows, those pilots, and then you do the uh, 900 series, um, is it in a sense kind of like a pivot? Did you kind of like, I, I feel like you pivoted in a sense, in a sense of, you know, you, you kind of went to go at, for one show and then you kind of figured it out from there, I guess. Would that would you consider that a pivot? I, I, pivot to me kind of has the wrong connotation, only because mm. when when you say pivot to me as a basketball player my whole life, other than the last ten, I guess. Mm. Um, you know, when I start off with the ball, I'm facing one direction, and then yeah. if I pivot, I'm facing a different direction. So to me, it wasn't about facing a different direction. It's the same direction. But again, it was more like that hotel party analogy where I had to understand where's the front door. So the target never changed. I didn't change my target based on what happened. But what I realized is I can't go through the window. I can't climb the terrace and come in through the fire escape. I have to go walk around the building, go through the front door, and follow the the real path. Gotcha. Okay. And so that's what I'm doing. It's it's basically maybe a better analogy, uh, John, is um, think about somebody coming to like a rave in a warehouse, mm-hmm. parking, seeing all the cars, and there's no signage as to where the entrance is. Yeah. So what do you got to do? You just keep circling the building until you find a door that's unlocked, yeah. right? <laughs> and so to me, that's what I've been doing is I want to be at the party. Yeah. I think I know where the party is, but I need help navigating to get to the front of the line, get to the people that will let me in, and then walk the corridor, take the elevators, take the escalators to get me where I need to be. Uh, so that's the only thing that's changed. Yeah. But, but it, you know, it's kind of funny because it's, I took a step, big step back from where I thought I would be and what I thought I was investing in. Mm-hmm. But with the 900 series, I began to realize how many pieces of the foundation needed to be set 
that I hadn't done yet. And so by doing that particular project, Mm -hmm. that was my opportunity to, you know, legitimately call myself a producer because I'm calling people, I'm lining stuff up, I'm getting crew there organized, I'm getting the money from the client, paying the crew, uh, you know, taking care, you know, and getting a show on Discovery is not trivial. So that was a whole challenge unto itself, checking the boxes, making deadlines, um, you know, um, you know, how do we create revenue, working with sponsors, uh, you know, what do we got to do by way of signage and then making sure that the signs are in place so that mm-hmm. we don't film a whole episode and forget our sponsor and have them mad at us. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, uh, moving on to the distribution piece, you yeah. know, after it aired on Motor Trend, how do we get it on Amazon? How do we get yeah. it on Tubi? Who are the sales agents? Well, they talk to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the encouraging thing is, I want to throw this out to your audience, John, is the encouraging thing to me was after we produced the 900 series, which is produced on a shoestring budget, yeah. um, you know, we were a bit nervous about submitting it to people. And what we were told is have an organized concept, make sure your shots are framed well and in focus mm-hmm. and you have good sound. Yeah. If you can do those three things, there is such an appetite for video content right now, you can get something to the market. So anyway, but I, you know, but the distribution was the big piece of it. Yeah. You know, if I produce something, how can I get paid for it? And with the 900 series, we're at a place now where we produce one episode. We have four to five different people paying us oh. for that content. And that's where I say we're really on that cusp yeah. of being to the point that we can spend a dollar and we know we're going to get a buck fifty. Yeah. So then you're just like, oh, I'm going to put as many dollars into the, the machine as I can now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're starting to be able to work our way up. You know, it's still supply and demand. Yeah. The more I'm sitting around twiddling my thumbs, the cheaper I have to work for if I want to be in this business. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once you start serving people and getting a reputation and more people want you to do more things, well, now you get to start working your rate up because I'm in demand and there's only one of me, you know? Um and I can't say enough about my crew, too, our Las Vegas-based crew. Mm. Uh, I'm going to mention their names to you. Hey, go ahead. Uh, Allie Johnson is actually my daughter. She moved on to Atlanta on me in December, which I'm not happy about. <laughs> uh, but she's uh, kind of my junior. She did all the post-production, okay. uh, was secondary camera, and helped me produce. Uh, so she's a, a real talent uh Take a couple more years, but she's going to pop out. She's going to do some amazing stuff. Awesome. Of course, Jeremiah Rounds, I mentioned on the trailer, was my director and really uh, you know, ran that whole project. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been with me each step of the way, uh, takes care of the cinematography, um, the directing, you know, camera shots and everything, uh, lighting, uh, which I think is a shout-out to one of the best cinematographers in town, Ryan Galvin. Uh, he actually came by and did a, um, and I can't even get him to invoice me for it, which kind of ticks me off. Uh, he's that nice of a guy. But he did me a solid, just came out for a half, a couple of hours, helped us look at the shop and what kind of lighting we needed to, to, to spruce it up without turning it into a Hollywood studio. Uh, on sound, we used Jane DeFleu. Uh, she's a, a younger uh, sound tech here in Vegas, but reliable uh it's always been good and uh uh, just fantastic and really uh it was the three of them that uh, uh 
you know, pretty much we were able between the four of us to be a fully functioning crew and uh, produce season one. Awesome. Uh, I'm totally going to get some of your crew on the, on the podcast then. Now that I have the names. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, Jeremiah would be an interesting interview for you because he's, uh, been an art department, like I say, graphic artist. Um, and, uh, actually I had to wait to start filming, um, the 900 series because both he and Allie, uh, were part of Hell's Kitchen that, uh, oh. filmed last spring. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we kind of were dodging in between, um, that project. Um, but he, but Jeremiah has been on things like Paul Blart, Mall Cop 2, yeah. uh, Jason Bourne, Mustang. Um, so, uh, yeah, he's got a lot of perspectives, great stories to tell. And his best work is yet ahead of him. He's uh, got the capability of being a director. And, mm. uh, he's kind of uh, working his way up. It's kind of interesting because he's so much further advanced on the creative side as it comes to just the production company from you know, the whole produce something, distribute it, get paid for it, that whole kind of thing. I'm a little kind of caught up to him a little bit there. So I kind of, you know, again, my value proposition is concept, uh, production, you know, coordination and revenue. And then I'm able to let him kind of take care of the creative. Yeah. I have a question too for you. Uh, you said because Motor Trends is part of the Discovery family, will you be getting picked up hopefully for Discovery Plus? Well, is it on... Is the 900 series going to be on Discovery Plus? Um, not yet. Mm. One of the problems that we have, and uh, your audience should know this, um, uh, not that they should know it ahead of time, but I want to make sure they hear it mm-hmm. um, so that they can uh, you know, use it. Um, typically when you're going to some of the emerging streaming platforms, minimum number of episodes is about 13. Yeah. So if you think you're going to produce a pilot and one or two more, you know, you either have to be able to get to 13 or don't bother. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, you can you can buy a lottery ticket and try producing a pilot, put it out on YouTube, whatever. I just don't know how to, that works um, and, and what the percentages are. Um, so uh, what I tell people, keep it, again, back to the MVP, keep it as cheap as possible. Don't spend on anything you don't need. Yeah. Borrow cameras if you have to, but do something to shoot 13. Now, yeah. and part of what we do, we did a little test on this. We're working with some ladies on a new show called uh, Vegas Picks that we want to get out onto Amazon here in the next month or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the young lady is uh, Renee Poole from Call Renee Estate Liquidators. And so it's kind of a mix between Pawn Stars, American Pickers, and Storage Wars, if you will. Yeah. Uh, they get estates that people uh, people die in Las Vegas, and their family doesn't want to come clean up their house, mm-hmm. so they sell all the stuff. And so there's some pretty cool stuff that comes through. But anyway, as part of our test to try to see where we are in cost, um, we set it up so that we could shoot four episodes in a single day. Wow. Uh, and so we had to be a little more organized. Um, they had the ladies had to come with a change of clothes, um, and uh, we we didn't get done as fast as I wanted the first time around. We we had the general we were we were in range, um, but but again that allowed us then if I'm paying four thousand dollars a day for the crew, you know skeleton crew, yeah. Um, then that allows me now to each episode is costing me a thousand dollars. 
Um, it actually is a little bit less than that because of the way I negotiate with my crew by giving them consistent work in return for a lower daily rate. Um, and I always, you know, upping it uh, every few months. Um, so anyway, so I was able to get that cost down to about 750 per episode. It's so, you know, with some of the streamers that I work with now, I can get paid 250 an episode. So if I can license it to three platforms and have some AVODs out there that are going to pay me a hundred bucks a month, again, now I can recoup all of my money as soon as I deliver post. Um, and then I'm going to make this residual. And then I can just keep repeating. And then once, so, so back to your question, minimum is 13 episodes mm -hmm. for us to end up on discovery plus or a platform like that. They really want to see you minimum 75, but preference is about 88 episodes. Wow. Um, so it, it takes a little bit to kind of, yeah, because what they don't want is to have, you know, you'll see this like on Netflix or Amazon where you go, Hey, I like this show. And you get in there and there's seven episodes of this miniseries. And that's it. Um, so nobody wants to roll a new show that's unproven unless there are uh, a lot of them in the camp. And so what we're trying to do is come up with a business model where we can make 13 and get paid for 13, get our money back, make a little bit more the next season, a little bit more. And then over the course of probably six to eight months, we can get our way up towards that 88 episode threshold. And then if everything's been paid for, then we can go back and cash in big time because now it's really worth something because like on a linear network, mm -hmm. if they launch the show, now they're not going to have any reruns for 88 weeks. Right. True. So uh, that's a year. A time slot. So. Wow. That's fascinating. Holy shit. Well, and that's what I say, John. Those yeah. are the things that, you know, I learned by doing. You yeah. know, you, everybody can sit there and tell you. Uh, <laughs> and, and the other big thing is, again, um, is the networking piece of it. And there are a couple of grouchy, grumbly, difficult personalities in uh, the Las Vegas film community. Um, but by and large, it's a great group of people. Mm -hmm. And for some people like me just starting out, yeah. I can't be prickly and uh, crusty. You know, yeah. I've got to be, please, thank you, how high on the way up kind of stuff. You yeah. know? Because you're, you're really, you know, anytime you're the lesser, you're trying to get somebody to take you seriously and not dislike you mm -hmm. so that you get the opportunities. And so, uh, you know, that's a big part of it is meeting people and not just, you know, there's some people who think, okay, I get a business card. I shake your hand with yeah. the eye. You're going to throw me money. No, what you're doing is trying to say I'm your equal or I can do you a favor. Mm -hmm. I can help you in some way. And, uh, the more that you're able to do that and get in touch with people, then people are looking out for, Hey, there's the opportunity you know, like with the 900 series where this yeah. guy had a client and needed a producer to, to bring the crew and, you know, the, the vision for the show. Um, so like, Hey, there's a little vacuum here. Do you want to try to fill it? Sure. You know, but that is being professional. And, and that's the one thing I was the proudest of after we aired our 13 weeks on 
motor trend is they actually got a written letter of reference from discovery, you know, stating that, you know, we were one of the best outside production companies that ever worked with, Oh wow! you know, to deliver stuff on time, on mm-hmm. schedule and to spec and quick and communicating constantly. So it's, it's those little professionalism things that really make all the difference in the world. Cause you can be out networking and if you're obnoxious and I know specifically there's this one person in town who uh, thinks they're awesome because they're not afraid to go introduce themselves and get somebody's face, but then they're obnoxious, and then everybody's like, I don't want anything to do with that person. So <laughs> be nice as you're, yeah. you're networking. And, uh, and again, it's all about money, so it's not about my ego. If i got to lick somebody's shoe to make a good, uh, uh, you know, uh, revenue chunk. Yeah. Huh? I like the shoe, you know, and, and, so, metaphorically yeah. speaking and within what I, right. well, this is a, this is a kind of a perfect segue kind of into our next half of the show, which we have the two halves of the show is where we talk about the Vegas community and, uh, we talk about the strengths, yeah. the weaknesses and what can we do to improve it. And, you know, you're laying out some strengths and you're laying out a little bit of weaknesses, but what are some more strengths and weaknesses that you see, you have seen in your time in the Vegas? Well, I, I think there's, there's no doubt uh, Vegas has a deep well of creative talent mm-hmm. um, in every discipline. Yeah, um, and I get so sick of hearing these people that brush over the LA types about, "Well, you guys don't have this, yeah. you don't have that, you're a bunch of wannabes." Well, the only thing we're lacking it right now is the financial fuel in the organization mm-hmm. to get organized. But to me, that's what I love about it because yeah. as a former CEO tech kind of guy i like where i find raw material yeah that's underutilized and so that's my challenge yeah um so anyway so so that that's you know real positive there's some great mm. people uh that we've worked with in vegas and, and want to keep working with um I would, I would say on the improvement side of things uh, I, I think in general anybody that's involved with the creative side of things has just always got to have one eye on um, their professionalism mm. uh, and, and making sure that, you know, they don't go off half-cocked. Be, you know, because the, the thing about the Vegas creative community, which I found is a positive, mm. is it, it's not six layers of separation. It's like two. So anybody you meet, you're going to be able to connect all the dots to yeah. everybody else in the creative community yeah. very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> It's, but a, that's it's a small downside. circle. It's a, it's a very yeah, small but, circle. But that's also yeah. the downside is because some of these people that are not seasoned, professional, ready to sacrifice mm. to save their reputation, you know, go above and beyond. Yeah. They're just trying to jump. They're trying to body surf, basically, <laughs> you know, the industry. Yeah. And it's like, no, no, no. You're going to get your feet on the ground, your neck at the yoke, and you've yeah. got to do your part as well as a professional. So what you end up with is a higher percentage of pretender. Yeah. And, and I just wish that the pretenders would stop, take a step back. And what's I going to talk about with the hotel party? Mm-hmm. You got to go through the front door. Yeah. Don't throw a rock to the window and join the party through the glass. Yeah. Go pay your dues, come in the right way. And the community be supportive, uh, you know, because with my idea, I probably met with, uh, over a hundred people to tell them about my idea and see yeah. if there's any way to work together. 
And I would say 97 of those 100 people were just freaking awesome and are like, whatever I can do to help. Yeah. Um, so that's out there. But uh, I think all of us just need to be vigilant about the wannabes who just are not ready to put in the work and the discipline, um, you know, to move the community ahead. I, I agree with you. I usually say that about the actors in the community uh, because there's like, I always say there's like about 80 to 90% who say they can act, but they can't really act and they just act like they're actors. And then the 10% or 20% are the ones that are trying to actually get to the next level and actually do good shit. And, uh, they, they get to, they kind of don't like, aren't seen because of the other people that are all, I'm an actor, but they're not really. Right. And I think that's part of the scourge, you know, I don't know what scourge is right there. Uh, That's part of the conundrum. Yeah. Uh, It's probably a better word with the, with the, with the creative, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, visual art, if you will, of television and film and stuff, because as long as you can memorize lines, you can memorize lines, but that doesn't make you an actor capable of, you know, inhabiting a character and emoting on demand. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but anybody can show up and try and look like they're doing it. And a lot of people feel like they're doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and you know, when I was teaching, uh, I, I didn't mention this either, but I, it my early days of college, I was pretty shy and insecure. Yeah. And I took um, some speech class, which had acting with it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I ended up kind of being the dominant alpha actor, uh, which kind of preceded any of my writing and producing stuff. Um, but it was hard and it was a lot of effort and I was emotionally drained, mm. but I was totally in. I did more stage and not so much, uh, recorded stuff, yeah. uh, but some pretty big stage production. Um, and, and I could get there. Um, but so it is frustrating when you watch those people just kind of show up. Uh, but I remember when I was teaching my high school kids mm. said, you know, there's a difference between acting and pretending, um, you know, pretending, is just a facade. You're not there emotionally. Yeah. When you're really acting, you're living it in the moment. There may be a camera running, there's everything else, but you're really living it. Um, you know, and so that's what I see a lot of people pretending uh, when they think they're acting. And again, they're just not being serious enough to put in the work to get there. And, and anybody that says, I'm doing this because it's relatively easy, uh, that's a red flag. Because yeah. this, this, if it's going to be a legitimate career, you know, and that's why I go back to tax, right? Yeah. You can't fool me. If I sit you down in front of a Cisco router cable modem controller and say, hey, turn up, you know, 64 or 256 QAM um, on 44 megahertz, um, you know, go. You either can do it or you can't. Yeah, I can't you know? do it. I'm sorry. Um, there, there's no bluffing. Yeah. You know, um, but, you know, with acting, with, you know, people that say, hey, I'm a director or yeah. I'm a writer or I'm a, all of those things you can just call yourself without ever having to prove, you know, mm-hmm. but you, you never put doctor on your business card without passing the board. Right. Yeah. Or getting a PhD. Yeah. Um, but it's just odd that in this industry, people are like, hey, this is cool. This is a way to get attention. Maybe I can make money. 
you know, having fun. Yeah. And then they start calling themselves all kinds of things that yeah. really spoils it for the pros in the business. It really does. And now I might have to put doctor on my business cards and just see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't even know if that's a legal thing. You know, I, I, you know well, they, I can just say I'm a th- doctor of like some made up shit. So I mean, that could work technically in my favor. There you go. There we go. There you go. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you how it works next time. Uh, I make business cards, Ken. <laughs> uh, um, what do you think we can get? To, we can do to get to the next level in Vegas as well. Is there anything else? Is there any other strengths? Any other weaknesses? Anything else that you're seeing? I, no, I mean, to me, mm-hmm. the biggest thing is. Um, you know, there's two things. Yeah. Um, I was uh, back in Ohio. I was working with a community that wanted to create an outdoor theater drama thing. And that yeah. was a big thing a few years back. Uh, there's a big one in Ohio called Trumpet in the Land. Uh, another one that's called Tecumseh. And they're open air amphitheaters. Uh, and they tell a historical story. And it ends up being a tourist attraction. So anytime there's creative like that, I'm like, I'm in. So we got together, did the concept and this, uh, my wife's, uh, boss, he was the CEO of this very successful rubber company. Mm-hmm. He, um, made an appointment with me to sit down and, uh, talk about this project because he lived in that town. I'm like, Oh boy, here we go. Yeah. So I sat down and he was like, okay the worst thing we can do with limited resources is have people working all on their own. Um, he said, so what we need is synergy. And so we talked about the project a little bit and expenses and stuff. And I'm like, um, you know, this is my approach, this, that, and the other. He's like, Oh, okay. I feel much better that you're working with the tourism bureau. You're working with the city. You're being realistic about the budget. You know, get the story first and then let's see. So it was all good. But I think that's one of the things I would say in Vegas. And the phrase he he taught me was random acts, random individual acts really don't deliver. So typically what you're looking for is synergies and, you know, layered strategy. Yeah. And so I would say with the creative community, the independent producers, I'd like to see more collaboration. You know, for instance, somebody says, Hey, I want to go make, I've got this idea for a sitcom Yeah. and I want to be able to film it. Well, I would love those kind of people to reach out to me mm. to allow me to not take over their production. Uh, I'm just like an open book. Yeah. Know, so many people have been good to me and that's the industry I was raised in as mm. uh, you help other people and you help yourself. Yeah. Um, so you know, I would love more people that have an idea to not have random acts. I'd kind of like to see some structure where, you know, people could come by, pitch their idea, and then you could talk about, okay, great. How do we get 13 episodes as cheaply as we possibly can, but with it looking legit? Yeah. You know, the finished product. Because I've seen some that, you know, somebody's gone off, and spent a lot of time, a little bit of money, and the the video is legit. It's baseline, okay, mm-hmm. but the audio is horrible, you know. And you're just like, ah. And then I've seen other stuff where the audio is perfect, but it looks like you shot it on your VHS camcorder from 20 years ago, um, you know, because the lighting is flat yeah. and there's, you know, 
which you can get away with a little bit of that in a reality context, but mm-hmm. not a scripted show. Yeah. You know, so it's like, you know, and, and granted, everybody and their brother can criticize and say, hey, well, don't do anything to you spend more money. And I hate that. Uh, but just, you know, that collaboration as a team, I think that's a, a big thing uh, that I would like to see. Um, and then I think just a little more uh, positive collaboration within the market, you know, with, with the, the trades in the marketplace. Yeah. Uh, as small and as intimate as we are, there's still a lot of stuff that, you know, the, the, the industry is still sort of stratified with the high-end players, the mid-range players, and the cheap ones like me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, you know, just be able to see a little more of that communication vertically, top to bottom, would be kind of cool. Um, but at the end of the day, like I say, you know, I'm kind of the guy from the bottom of the stack, mm-hmm. kind of working my way up the tree. Uh, and, um, you know, so I've got to I've got to earn it each step of the way, and I've yeah. got to produce um, hit a, a high percentage betting average. Uh, but I do, you know, I want to see everybody succeed, uh, and I think there's a lot of talent here, a lot of ability. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the more that we all, you know, we get a few people succeeding, eventually that rising tide will lift, lift all the ships. That that is so true, and you know. I, I want this community to succeed. That's why I ask these questions, and that's why I have this open forum as well, too. Or because again, we need to see what everyone's, you know, what everyone's seeing through their eyes, and you know, make some great points uh, with the film community. And even that too, uh, I just want to kind of not piggyback, but kind of rebuttal you on two things, or maybe one thing, but just the one about the the crew here. Or I believe you're saying something about the we have a great crew. I think the the great crew that we have here doesn't also get utilized when we have outside productions. And they don't out and they outsource it to California production still, and they bring those people on. I feel yeah. like we're not getting that uh, love yet. So I mean, we have some great. Well, I, get, I, I agree, yeah. but I think that goes back to a point I made earlier, hmm. which is at some point the production crews here, the production companies like ours, yeah, have got to do enough to earn the right to get that opportunity, and then. Mm-hmm. It has to be followed up by knocking it out of the park. And so I think really what you're seeing is if you're, you know, looking at one of the big casinos that's going into L.A. for everything. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, and, and, because that's really the only thing, John, yeah. that we could really complain about. Because if it's an L.A., New York, mm-hmm. uh, Atlanta-based production company that decides to shoot in Vegas, yeah. well, we can't expect them to you know, know whom to call and give them some guilt over it. And they always do spread some around. Yeah. Hell's Kitchen is a good example. Um, but I also think, you know, over time we have to look as a group, yeah. what are we lacking, you know, in terms of art installations and uh, the technical prowess and enough of it so that these people don't need to bring those resources from out of market. But I kind of, so, like myself, I expect to earn yeah. the next step. And so I think, you know, as a creative community, collectively, we need to have that attitude and not, you know, because I never want anybody to give me work by default. Yeah. You know, I want to earn it. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, I, now, to your point, which I will agree with, mm. I should at least get the opportunity to bid. You know, yeah. I should know that there's an opportunity and what's going on. Yes. So at least give me that shot. But again, if 
if somebody in town is doing great work and knocking it out, um, then people will find you. Yeah. And so that's really the challenge is for us to do. And that's where I get back to that activity. We get the activity. We need to, you know, get to work, yeah. produce good stuff, get enough of a volume. And then I, I think there's, there's a great opportunity within our market mm-hmm. for a lot of jobs and a lot of revenue, yeah. especially if we get past the stupid COVID. Uh, so hopefully soon. Hopefully in the next <laughs> some some odd, I'll say another. Hopefully within another year or less. I'm, I'm gonna be optimistic here. <laughs> Very far off optimistic. Can yeah. uh, um, I have three more questions for you, sir? One, okay. I forgot to ask you this. What are your goals for 2021? Uh, yeah, what are the goals? So you know, it's funny when I was CEO of the telephone company, I took over the phone company, the mm-hmm. year that Time Warner got in, it started offering phone, yeah. and the first iPhone was released. So I, you know, basically took over a company that its main revenue sources were all drying up. So I spent 10 years reinventing that company, uh, and my motto was, don't die today. Yeah, I, I have no idea what I'm going to do tomorrow. Yeah. But if the company doesn't go bankrupt by the time I leave today, that's a victory. <laughs> you know, yeah. that was kind of my motto. Can I push it out? So to an extent, 2021 is that. Um, but more than that, I want to accelerate our uh, growth mm-hmm. and uh, shore up the revenue side of things with, uh, you know, what I learned uh, last year, yeah. uh, you know, producing the 900 series season one. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and, and hopefully uh, expand my crew just a little bit. Actually, we have. We've brought on another uh, camera operator slash editor. Nice. And uh, so that's kind of exciting. Um, yeah, so it's, 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 you know, we want to accelerate, speed up mm-hmm. uh, our growth. And again, get to that, you know, we put a buck in, get a buck 50 out, and really have that calculus nailed down. So th- that's a big goal for 2021. Good goals, good goals. All right, and last two questions. Uh, would you like to give out your social media? Uh, sure. Um, we are um, at Vegas, the network. Um, so uh, on all platforms, Vegas, the network. All right, and then my last question. You were dropping nuggets all day, Ken. What's that last golden nugget, if you have any left? Uh, of like advice? Or- advice, yeah. Sage wisdom, uh, sage like wisdom advice, you know, you know, anything you want to say. Yeah, like I say, I, 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 you know, probably my favorite that I like to throw out to anybody listening is activity begets activity. Get out and do something. If you have to do it for free the first couple of times, do it. Uh, shut your mouth. <laughs> Go to work. Uh, because at the end of the day, it's the work product. You know, it's like the 900 series. I could tell you everything about the money of the show. I could tell you everything about how great the crew was and, you know, the concepts and how we did the storytelling and everything. But at the end of the day, none of that matters. What matters are those 13 episodes. Mm-hmm. It's like when I'm talking to somebody and say, hey, take me seriously. Well, by the way, we're on Amazon Prime and Tubi, and here's a, a private link on Vimeo to watch uh, you know, these three episodes. Yeah. That's what opens doors. Uh, not all the talk, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Um, and, and it's amazing how my emails have changed from, you know, being all pitch, you know, mm-hmm. and 
bank on me to, hey, here's a couple of links. Uh, we'd like to do X. Yeah. Um, and, and I would say, too, is any opportunity that you get, go over and above three times uh, and obsess about over-delivering. Yeah. Um, don't be casual. I mean, it, you, uh, I've been doing some stuff uh, locally here for tourism that we're mm. finishing up. Um, and every client to me is the only client, my last client in my life blood. Yeah. Um, you know, just, I just never take anybody that's writing me a check for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, as people approach their work, I think, you know, that's the thing I'd like to see them do to have that passion, to have that determination, uh, again, because that's the thing that's going to matter. What is the result of your work? What's that work product? Um, you know, and you can say I'm the greatest actor in the world, but if you throw out a, a, a reel, um, that should speak for itself. So Agreed. anyway, activity yeah. begets activity. Get out there and do something. Awesome. Great, great last bit of uh, nuggets that Ken is dropping right there. And Ken, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Hey, thank you. Oh, no problem, yeah. man. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate the opportunity. I'm going to thank you again. So I'm the last one to thank you. No, I'm kidding. So uh, again, <laughs> again, guys, uh, thank you for listening. And remember to subscribe to the podcast. We're on Spotify, Overcast, TuneIn Radio, Anchor, Out Podcast, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, Pandora, you name it, we're probably on it. You can find it somewhere. Uh, and I can't do this without my frame chasers. And I'm just trying to bring knowledge to all you listeners out there. And I hope you're getting some great, valuable information and learning some something from it because we all have a story and we all go through things at the same time or at different times. I hope the people that are on, on the show are keep inspiring you to chase those frames. Again, guys, thank you and have a great day. Have a great week. Have a great month. Have a great year. We'll catch you next week on Chasing the Frame. Peace, geese. Bye. Let's go. This is the Chasing the Frame podcast where we interview people in the TV and film industry talking about their journey, how they got to where they are today. We do this podcast for the frame chasers. This is for those in the film industry going hard. Let them know who we are. Frame chasers. We're, we're not chasing the fame. No, no. Tell them what we do. We're chasing the frame. This is the Chasing the Frame podcast with